You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So one of the great joys we had growing up was that we grew up with something called family friends. So these are people who my grandparents knew, and then when they had kids and these grandparents had kids, my parents knew. And then when my parents had kids and these folks had kids, we knew them. So we grew up together. Uh, We vacationed together. We spent holidays together. We did birthdays together. And even though we lived in different states and had different lives, there was a deep bond and a shared friendship that felt more like family. So what I'm going to share with you is not a story with no faces, but in fact, deeply personal. The dad of this family was a school teacher, and the place where they lived was a fairly small and tight-knit town. They lived seemingly quiet lives, involved in church, nothing out of the ordinary, or so it would seem, until 2010 when something happened that would fundamentally change our lives and theirs. The father of this family had a deeply rooted issue that none of us knew about. And one Saturday evening, he ended up in a chat room where he would go on to solicit sex from a 14-year-old child. That would turn out not to be the voice of a 14-year-old child, but rather a sting operation in which he was surrounded at 1.30 in the morning by eight cop cars. You can probably imagine what it was like when two cops showed up at the house at 2 a.m. when the wife, not knowing where in the world her husband could be, the emotion is either imminent fear that something horrible has happened to him, or equally terrifying, something has happened because of him. And so that Saturday morning, or that Sunday morning, my dad gets a call. Tom, we need you to come here. So my dad drives three hours, pulls up to the house, goes to the door, and the guy is out on bond, and he gets into the car, and my dad looks at him and says, I need you to tell me exactly what you did. And for the next hour, this man goes all the way back to years and years before and just starts to spill his entire life, from his childhood to his teenage years, to his young married years, to the downfalls in his marriage, to the pornography, to this tragic moment where his life is literally hanging in the balance. And then for the next hour, he just sat in silence. Because what can you say after everything you have hidden has been unearthed? And then an hour after that, just the sobs and the vocal cry of, I am sorry. And I remember my dad recounting the story to me when he got back. And I remember the moment of confusion and frustration and just complete disruption and the spiraling of my own thoughts. I remember thinking, he just absolutely blew up his life. But I think that is an honest confession. There was no justifying, no moralizing, no excusing, no talking around it, no trying to explain it. Just the cold, hard facts. Exposed, not voluntarily but, or by his own choosing, but by God's kindness. And now the opportunity and the invitation to do something that most of us rarely ever do voluntarily. Confess. Humbled by the fact that everything he had hidden in the dark for 15 years is now in the light. And not just in the light in his immediate circle. His face is on the media. He is not in the light. He is in the spotlight. Whereby grace, he has little choice but to absolutely own the thing that he would have never spoken out loud. 
confession. The question I would put to you is, do you believe in confession? We don't live in a culture of confession. We live in a culture of litigation. Meaning, how can I get out of this? We hire lawyers. (laughs) We uh, care about insurance firms. We figure out shortcuts and make deals so as not to own up to something that was inherently our fault because we cannot come to terms with the fact that a wrong occurred precisely because of me. We are good at talking our way out of things, explaining away wrongs, excusing ourselves, perhaps even justifying our behavior to riff off one of the great movies of all time from Colonel Jessup and a few good men. We cannot handle the truth. We can't handle it. I mentioned on Ash Wednesday that repentance is one of the words we don't like in the church, but that's just because confession is one of the practices that we're most scared of in the church. If I confess, there goes my reputation, there goes how impressive I seem. If I confess, who actually even am I? It's not as if we don't want to confess, though. It's just that we're afraid to confess because we're not convinced of what is on the other side of confession. Here is a great example. There's an organization in LA that operates something called the Apology Sound Offline, which is a telephone service that gives callers an opportunity to confess their wrongs for the price of a phone call. People who no longer believe in priests and pastors, but still believe in something like sin, now trust their sins to an answering machine. 200 anonymous callers contact the service each day, leaving 60-second messages. Adultery is a common confession. Some call to confess criminal acts like child abuse or rape or even murder. A recovering alcoholic left this message, I would like to apologize to everyone I have hurt for the past 18 years. Another woman calls in, I just want to say I'm sorry. I caused a car wreck in which five people died. I wish I could bring them back. There is something in us that feels the need, like the urge even to say it out loud, but we're unsure enough of grace, so we keep it in. And the bizarre nature of that story is that on the other end of the phone line is just a simple... I mean, they were able to get something off their chest because they had to, because it was eating them alive. But there was no one there to offer them the one thing they wanted more than to confess their sins. Grace. No one's offering them grace on that line. And it is exhausting, but we have become very attuned to keeping up appearances and holding up an image of ourselves that we want others to see, all the while scared, scared to death of anyone else finding out who we actually are. And I believe that is because we are not convinced of grace. But it's also dripping in irony because the thing we want most desperately is to be known, but it's also the thing that we're most guarded of, being known. Because to open yourself up to being known is to open yourself up to pain, vulnerability, intimacy, 
It is owning up the things that you absolutely do not like about yourself, which is what the Scripture calls the flesh. But to be known is also to open the door of intimacy. It is what we crave and is what we fear. So we hedge our bets. Do we want to save face and be impressive, or do we want to be known? You cannot be impressive and be known. In fact, the impressive thing about you is confession. What do we desire more, an impressive track record or grace? And see, what happens when we do get exposed, either voluntarily or by force? Typically, we react the same ways that humans have always reacted. The problem goes all the way back to the beginning. Sin enters the world and the trust structures of the human heart begin to collapse in on themselves. And the reaction of Adam and Eve is the exact same reaction we have today. But have you ever noticed the interactions between God and Adam and Eve when they're exposed? Our view of God is that he comes in super hot, super heated, ready to blow them up. And you know what he does? He actually asks questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? What is this you have done? And then, of course, the reactions of the ancient Near Eastern culture thousands of years ago are the exact same as they are today. The woman you gave me, she made me do it. The serpent you made, he made it. He made me do it. We react in shame and we hide and we recoil and we blame and we shift. And the inability and the aversion to own up before God and therefore own up before one another is maybe one of our greatest hindrances to our witness. What keeps people away from God is our functional disbelief in grace. In God, we are made for intimacy, but in the flesh, we are bound to hide. And the truth is, most of us treat confession like a single one-time act, an acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. And at one level, there is something to that that is sweet, wonderful, unexplainable. But just like in marriage, while saying vows may be the moment when you get married, living your vows is what it means to be married. And confession at one point in time that Jesus is Lord may be a marker of how you became a follower of Jesus. But a regular practice of confession is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Without confession, there is no room to experience grace. And without grace, there is no opportunity for freedom. And Christianity void of the experience of grace is Christianity void of the experience of joy in God. And that is not Christianity. That is another pseudo-religion that is not worth anyone's time here. We either believe the most unnatural reality in the world, that grace is real and that it can be experienced, or we believe, like the rest of the world, that everything is based off merit and that it is about maintaining a reputation. And the number one goal of our life is trying to differentiate ourselves from who we are and who, and who the perception is of us from everyone else. That is 
the most exhausting thing that we do, and it is also the air that we breathe. And 1 John shows us that the way to God is not up and to the right, but down, way down, and to the left. Leaning in and owning up is the way. So, this is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Perhaps the thing we need to hear most today is just that God is light. Imminent light. So when we get exposed, it's just more light breaking in. And our response when that happens is most often to find another dark corner in the room. But the invitation is always light. Now, we hear this first, and of course, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you would say, absolutely, you have to come out of darkness to walk with Jesus. And I would venture to say that no one here would raise their hand and say, I am without sin. But I just want us to notice something. It says, walk in darkness. Walk in darkness is a present tense verb, meaning are we regularly practicing exposing the darkness in us and walking in the light? Is that an inevitable practice of our life? We are not talking about the moment you were justified before God. We are talking about the day-to-day moments of being sanctified by God. Put simply, are we in denial? Are we stiff-arming the grace of God because we believe it's easier to keep it all bottled up? We are not Catholic in in the denominational sense or the ecclesiological sense, meaning how we think about church. And I don't agree with how it gets practiced, but I genuinely appreciate the fact they haven't kicked confession. The problem with their confession is that it comes through being anonymous. But we believe confession comes through being known. And to not practice confession is to not practice the way of Jesus. If we say we have fellowship with God and are not in the regular rhythm of practicing confession, we are saying functionally with our lives, I am without sin. I am without sin. And we all know that no one is without sin, but it's much easier to say it than it is to live it. And why? Why for a culture like ours is it so hard? Well, I would say it's the same as it was in Jesus' day because of what Jesus said. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. So Thomas Keating is a Trappist monk, and he put it like this. The cross Jesus asks you to carry is yourself. It's all the pain inflicted on you in your past and all the pain you've inflicted on others. What heavier cross is there in your life than that? All the pain that you've endured and all the pain that you've inflicted. All the slander that has been done about you and all the gossip that you have contributed to. All the wounds that you carry because of someone else that are so public. And all the secrets that you carry that you're taking to the grave with you. All the grievous sin done against you and the grievous sin you have committed. The cross you are carrying is you. So take up your cross and follow me. There is no heavier cross than that. 
The call is to walk in the light, and walking in the light means getting exposed, where the cross you are carrying is visible. Even if only with a few others, this is the path. He goes on. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So confession is about receiving grace, and it's about the family of God, which is, by the way, the experience of that grace. Confession, as much as our false selves may want it to be this way, is not you hold up in a private room somewhere, praying to God and vocalizing your failures and sins and insecurities, and then walking out the door and never interacting with God's bride about those same issues. Why is confession not like that? Because while you may have confessed to God, you still hold the secrets. And holding in your secrets does not purge the false self. Walking in the light does not mean that you are not in the business of sinning. We all sin constantly. Sin does, so it doesn't mean a sinless life. Walking in the light means a secretless life. A church with no sin does not exist. A church with no secrets, however, I think is out there for us. Sin is like mold. It grows in the dark corners of the basement. And you don't go down there. And you don't touch it. And you don't address it. And you never expose it. And so you just wait and wait and wait until it eats and rots the floor of your home. And inevitably, all the other floors start to collapse. And then you get exposed. Here is my working definition of fellowship with others. I want you to reflect back to me who I am, who I want to be, and who I am becoming. Who I am. I am broken. I am a sinner. But did you know, by the way, the number one adjective used in the scripture to define the children of God is not sinner. It's saint. Saint. Who I want to be. My desires are not matching my life. You are going to help me remind me of that. Who I am becoming, future glory. We're not going to go into it, but if you keep reading in 1 John 3, it talks about how we will become like God when we see him. There is no way to describe in this moment what that will be like. So it's walk with me, call me out, push me, pray for me, encourage me, challenge me, and I do that with you, so let's do it together. Tish Harrison Warren says this, When we confess and receive absolution together, we are reminded that none of our pathologies, neuroses, or sins, no matter how small or secret, affect only us. We are a church, a community, a family. We are not simply individuals with our pet sins and private brokenness. We are people who desperately need each other if we are to seek Jesus and walk in repentance. If we are saved, we are saved together as the body of Christ, as a church. Because of this, I need to hear my forgiveness proclaimed not only by God, 
but by a representative of the body of Christ in which I receive grace. To remind me that though my sin is worse than I care to admit, I am still welcome here. I am still called into this community and loved. The great difficulty for us is that we read this and think, yes, confession to God only will lead me to be someone who is imaging Jesus to the world. The hard truth is mm, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Why is John making the point about fellowship with one another while talking about walking with God? Because our internal belief is proved by our actual practice. And to walk in the light is to be exposed by God and thus exposed to his bride. Exposure happens in the light. But the lie that we love to believe is that being exposed is what I should fear. And maintaining appearances is what I should keep. We have bought into this weird phenomenon that after reading the Bible, we assert that the longer we follow Jesus, the less we need confession. It's inherently backwards. The longer you follow Jesus, the more you grow in intimacy with Jesus. The more you realize how unlike Jesus you actually are, the more you desire grace, the more you confess. And the longer you follow Jesus, the more free you are to confess. I'm sure most of you have heard the prodigal son's story. It's a powerful story with a lot of layers to it, but the whole story hinges on the son having a moment and then returning to the father. Imagine the story written this way. Everything that you know about the story, the son spoils the possessions of his father. He goes out, he's in the pigsty. He cries out to God in the pigsty and he never goes back. He never goes back. The scripture says, when the son comes back, I have sinned against you. You. As a Protestant Christian, I think we read Psalms like Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and we just sort of summarize that praying a prayer of confession is all that is required. That is a great start. That is the starting place. That is where we must start, but it's not where we finish. We start with confession, but the end game is not confession. The end game is wholeness. Look what it says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This is James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is the exhortation. It does not say shame one another. It doesn't say guilt one another. It doesn't even say expose one another, actually. It doesn't say humble one another or embarrass one another. It says gently but confidently, confess your sins to one another. Why? Why would we do that? With so much to lose and so much on the line and our reputation at stake, with everything writing, why would you confess? Because the pathway of grace ends in what we all want most deeply. Healing. We want healing. This is 1 John. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
cleansing, healing. A God who is faithful and not just is a God who is willing but not able. And a God who is willing but not able is not good news. He is a God who desires to cleanse you, but can't. He's just a sentimental figure, but not a very powerful one. And a God who is not faithful, but is just, is a God who is able, but not willing. And a God who is able, but not willing, is also not good news. Because he doesn't desire to cleanse you, even though he can. And thankfully, the God of the scriptures is both faithful and just, able and willing. It is the God of Hebrews 4 who says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. With confidence. The idea here in Greek is fearlessness, boldness, assurance. We are not walking up to the king like backwards, just backing in, waiting for him to strike us. It's much, le- it's much more a father running to embrace us, not a king with a scepter who's going to strike us dead. The uncertainty of us coming to God with our sin is not in the Bible. It's just not in the Bible. And on the last day, you will have no more accomplishments, no more resumes, no more morality to stand on. You will be left with one thing, the real you. Stripped down and bare-boned. That's who will be in front of Jesus, not the projected you, not even the desirable you. Just you. We say we believe God forgives sinners, but what we, what we mean by that, I think, is God forgives those sinners and God forgives these sins. But not those sins that I'm not speaking out loud. What do you think of? What do you think God does with the real you? Like the honest you, the 3 a.m. you. The insecurities you cannot tell a soul, the temptations that are overwhelming, the past that eats at you once a month. What is the look on God's face right now when you consider the worst of your life? The lies you've told, the overindulgence, the fits of rage, the impatient spirit, the one night stands. What do you believe the look is on God's face when you come to him with that? Our answer to that question determines what we actually believe about God. That's what we believe about God. Whatever the posture of God's face is in your imagination right now, when you consider your worst sin, that's who you think God is. And what you do with that answer determines how you relate to others. To believe in the audacity of God's grace is to take a step forward of brutal honesty with a few trusted people. Why? Because we all want healing. We all want healing. 
Like a surgeon removing a cancerous tumor off the lung of her patient, she has to use a scalpel. It's painful to make the incision, but it's necessary for healing. You have to cut to heal. It's not needless pain. It's not punishment or mere punitive. It's for your body to get well. And confession is Jesus, our great healer, becoming the surgeon who makes some small incisions on us to expose us so that the cancer can be removed within us that most of us know about, but we're unwilling to make the appointment. But here's the thing. Something happens to you after you have pain. After you get cut open, what happens? A scar forms. A wound. The thing begins to heal. The mark doesn't go away, but now there is a story to it. Not a story of damaged goods, but a story of healing. Not a story of needless pain, a story of redemption. Not a story of death by disease, but a story of healed life. The scars always tell the story. Do you know the story that you were actually in? What is the one thing that Jesus took with him in his resurrected body? His scars. How is it that we, broken sinners, get healed? By his scars. Wounds. And so in the words of Henry Nouwen, we worship the wounded healer and we begin to embody the wounded healer. Why is it that those who have cancer or AIDS or other diseases that tend to be life-threatening, or why is it that those who have survived sexual assault, rape, tend to walk alongside those with the same challenges or the same illness or the same experience? Why? Because they know what it's like. They can say some of the most profound words in the English language, me too. Me too. And so it is with our scars. Even those we carry because of our doing in our own sin. But the story is not about our sin. It's about our Savior who is the great healer. This is a little bit of me using my imagination. But I don't think it's that much of a stretch. What do you think you're going to take with you in your resurrected body? I imagine much of the new creation, people walking around, asking each other with joy and wonder, hey, tell me about that scar. And then we launch into the story of the great physician cutting us deeply to heal us fully. Now, some of you are like, yeah, that's great. That's great, Wes. Uh, but can we get a little practical? We can. We can do that. So, there are two types of folks in this room, those who sin and those who have been sinned against. And guess what? We're all both of them. So Ruth Haley Barton is a guru in spiritual formation. She's done a lot of work in this. And she provides a really helpful framework for how to think through this. So I'm just going to put it up here. This is what she says. The first step in confessing sin is noticing it. Something has gone wrong, Right? One of the things we do best as human beings is ignore things. So don't ignore what's going on. Interpersonal conflict, emotional outburst, a moment where you succumb to temptation. Is there anything within me that caused this situation to go south? Especially if the sin directly involves another person. Don't focus on what they did. Focus on what you contributed. 
and then name it. What is it that I'm experiencing? So say you lash out at someone. I am angry. There's something about taking the power out of it when you literally vocalize it. And then you can say, was it really the other person that triggered me? Or is something going on in me that caused me to be in such a triggered state that I made X comment and then blew up? Typically, the moments we are in don't cause our reactions. They just reveal them. And then, of course, the hardest part, seeking forgiveness. You can do the above. You can, you can notice it. You can name it. You can be the most introspective person in the world. But now you need courage. You need a small step of courage. And this is the most humbling part, which is why we don't practice it. Because interpersonal confession is not only humbling, it's humiliating. But good news, folks. God only works with humiliated people. He only works with humble, humiliated people. So notice it, name it, seek forgiveness. And then finally, we don't ever get to this part because we barely do the third step. But here's the question. Is there anything I can do to make it right? Is there anything I can do to make it right? Maybe there's not. Maybe there won't even be immediate forgiveness, depending upon the pain that's been caused. But the call to follow Jesus is never to do the bare minimum. It's always to go above and beyond. Always. It's incredibly difficult. Now, for those who are receiving confession, some of us have confessed our sins to other people, and we did it one time, and it killed us. And we said, we'll never do it again. Somebody gave you the blank stare of death, where they didn't know what to do with you. So you're just like, ah, ah, ah sorry. Uh, honestly, the, you know, some, someone jumped and they gave you advice, they tried to fix you, or they immediately changed the subject out of discomfort. Or perhaps I think what they do, the cardinal sin of receiving confession, they are absolutely shocked. And being shocked is a guaranteed way you will never share anything again. And so Ruth Haley Barton helps us think through these things. Sam Alberry, who's a pastor in Nashville, helps us think through these four things. How do I receive someone's confession? One, be a good listener. Listen. I feel like I'm going to say it every sermon. <laughs> being listened to is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Just listen. And the next one, what I just said, is be unshockable. Be unshockable. No sin, no matter how grotesque, should shock you. If you are shocked, what that probably means is you are very unaware of how broken you are. And if you give the impression that you are somehow appalled by whatever it is the other person thought or said or did, you have not been humbled. You have not been humbled. The world is broken. You are broken. Don't be shocked. Third, be mutual. This isn't a Catholic confessional booth. It's a living room. So we share and we make it a two-way street. If it's constantly one way, we're, we're, it's, we're, we're no good. <laughs> are, are forgiveness and confession flowing both ways? And then we, we get to do what I think is probably the, the greatest thing is we just get to be a friend, right? 
Most of the time, at least in healthy relationships, true confession is probably going to happen in the confines of genuine friendship. That's the most natural, quite frankly, it makes the most sense. And what a good friend can do is he can put their arm around you and he can say, there is more for you. There is more of God's grace and there is more for your life. There is so much more for you. So I'm not going to leave you in your sin because Jesus didn't leave you in your sin. So I'm going to call you something more because there is grace for you. Grace for what you have done and grace for the journey ahead. I am here to love you into that. And you, by the way, are here to love me into that. So fasting, as we continue on in Lent, part of Lent is recalibrating yourself to be honest with God and one another. The hunger for food reveals so many things. Envy, jealousy, conflict, greed, lust. Easter is sweet because sin is bitter. Easter is good news because we live in a world of bad news. And most of us know that so much of the bad news is right here. So often I will go back to the prophet of Micah. And I'll end with this. This is what Micah says in Micah 7. That I think is just so rich. When you have sinned, this is the scripture to quote. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now, I'm sorry. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read not the whole chapter. This is the last part. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Corey ten Boom says, God has cast your sins into the depths of the sea and put a sign up that says, no fishing allowed. God is faithful and just. He is not merely making you right with himself. He is making you whole. You do not need merely a judge to clear your name. You need a physician to heal you. So let him. Let him. The story is better than we can imagine because God is more, great, God is more gracious than we actually believe. I hope you come here every time and walk out of here almost in disbelief about the goodness of God. Because it is unbelievable. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great physician and we do need your healing. We need it desperately. I need it. And so we come to you, even in this moment, confident that you are who you say you are, full of grace and full of mercy, abounding in steadfast love. 
And you are faithful to do what you said you will do. God, give us a glimpse of your heart. A longing to be reconciled and also just a longing for intimate relationships where I confess and I receive forgiveness and you, others confess and others receive forgiveness. This is the call, the highest call and the most freeing call. So stir in our hearts, Lord. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.